Hello, and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I am Sarah Ann Minkin, Director of Programs and Partnerships at the Foundation. Today is March 7th, 2022, and I'm delighted to be here with Dr. Maha Nassar. Dr. Nassar is Associate Professor in the School of Middle Eastern and North African Studies at the University of Arizona and a 2022 Fellow at the Foundation for Middle East Peace. She's one of the two inaugural fellows in the foundation's brand new Palestinian fellowship program. Thank you so much for being here today, Maha. Thank you for having me. Today, we are going to talk about your new research. You are in the midst of writing your second book. It has the working title, Palestine's People, A Global History. We're gonna talk about the people of Palestine, but before we launch into those people, we're going to root ourselves in this moment. We so often hear the question, who was there first? Or who was here first in this land? Who was there first? You say, Maha, that's not the right question to be asking. Please tell us more. Sure. So there are three reasons I think why the question of who was here first isn't really the right question we should be asking, especially if we are seeking to have some kind of a resolution or a just peace on this land. So the first reason why I think the question of who is here first isn't really the right question to be asking is what do we mean by first? When do we start the clock? Human civilization goes back tens of thousands of years so why start at 3,000 years ago? Why start at 4,000 years ago? Should we go back 10,000 years ago? So I think the question of timing when we ask the question of first can be problematic. Second reason is that oftentimes this question is posed not to actually seek an answer, but to stake a claim, to say, ah, we were here first. And so then the question becomes, okay, so who is the we in this claim? How do we determine that we? Is it based on religious identity? Is it based on genetic markers? Is it based on biological markers? Is it based on archeological findings? And then what sources and information do we privilege in order to answer that question that we're not really asking in the first place, but we're just posing so we can make our claims? So that's the, first, that's the second reason. And the third reason, which is related, is that the efforts then to answer those questions of what do we mean by first and what do we mean by we, both tend to privilege, the way I've been seeing it debated, especially in recent times, both tend to privilege biological concepts of race and ethnicity, which as we know, both have a dangerous history in the modern era. So biological constructions of race and ethnicity, as we know, have long been used by far-right and fascist movements around the world to claim national superiority and to claim national belonging. And as we also know, these results the results can be disastrous, particularly for those who are deemed to be racially or ethnically or biologically other. So I tend to get pretty nervous whenever I hear people claiming that they are the quote unquote real citizens of a particular nation because they're descendants of the ancient peoples of that land. And then if you add on the idea of, oh, and by the way, we were also here first, then I get even more nervous. So we have a really dark history of biological constructions of race and ethnicity in order to mark belonging 
through claims of a distant and genetic past. So on a, on a philosophical level, on an ethical level, I have a really hard time with using this question of who was here first as a basis for any sort of real understanding of what was happening. And then the final thing sort of just to summer, sum, sum it up, I think that the question of who is here first basically seeks to score political points by using highly problematic biological constructions of race and ethnicity in order to advance national claims. So rather than asking who is here first, I think a better question is who has been living on this land over the last several centuries and what can we learn from them? Thank you. I appreciate that you you have staked us in this moment of now saying, how are we drawing on the past in order to make a, a, a claim around now? And mostly when we hear this question, who was here first, people are trying to, to make a specific claim of one over the other mm -hmm. of who was here first and using um, very threatening and dangerous concepts as, as part of that. Um, you're also making a claim, you're staking a claim and you're saying basically, we're going we're gonna to rewrite how we even use this question, how we look at it. And in, instead of it being one or the other, and we're drawing connections to some kind of ancient marker, biological or, or religious, there's something else going on here. Who were the people who were living on this land over many centuries? And, and what can we learn about them? So answer your question, please tell us, who, who are these people? So I think when we talk about the people of Palestine, and I'm using that frame, that um, that phrase carefully, because I want us to both understand and also expand our understanding of who the Palestinians are. So initially, I was thinking of calling my book the Palestinians, but I also know that in the 21st century, that term is associated with a national concept of the Palestinians as a national movement, as a national group, as a national people. We know from the historical works and the scholarship of Rashid Khalidi and others that Palestinian nationalism emerges in the 20th century, in the early 20th century, as a response to the emergence of nationalism more broadly. And so this kind of self-awareness of the Palestinians as a national people goes back roughly a century. And I think that's a lot of, there's a lot of really important information and um, history within that. And that's certainly an important part of my story. But I don't think that's the whole story. And I think that even if we go back to the pre-national period, we can discern elements of Palestinian peoplehood that predate nationalist conceptions of who they are. And I find this through a lot of different um, sources and a lot of different ways of thinking about it. So my book project is uh, covering the rather modest period of the last couple thousand years. <laughs> <laughs> with a, but really with a focus on the Islamic period. So going back about 1400 years ago and thinking about this land that's been known as Palestine even before the Islamic period, before the Roman period, um, way back into the ancient period. Uh, but as we get to the Islamic period, it's known as Palestine, it's known as Philistine. And so who are the people living on it? How do they respond to the emergence of Islamic rule over them? And then more broadly, how does this connect to my approach of thinking about them um, in terms of global history? So before I talk about the Palestinians in the Islamic period specifically, 
maybe I'll start with thinking a bit more, talking a bit more about the idea of the Palestinians as a global history or Palestine's people in terms of global history. So for one thing, when we look at Palestinians and when we look at the pre-modern period, and by pre-modern, I'm referring to the period before, let's say the mid 19th century. So if we look at from the earliest Islamic writings that we have, or even pre-Islamic period, until about the mid 19th or late 19th century, we find that people are talking about a land called Palestine. We're talking, they're talking about people living there, but they're also very much attuned to the fact and aware of the fact that the people living in Palestine are not isolated from the region around them, nor are they isolated from the broader known world at the time. And that's because Palestine, as you know, sits at the nexus of numerous land and sea trade routes that go back all the way to ancient times. But also in over the last couple thousand years, it's also been a land of multiple pilgrimage sites. So we have Jewish pilgrimage sites that go back even you know, before the Roman period. You have Christian pilgrimage sites. And then with the advent of Islam, you have Islamic pilgrimage sites. So you have people from Asia, from Europe, and from Africa coming to Palestine for trade purposes and for religious pilgrimage purposes, sometimes staying put and sometimes coming temporarily and then leaving. But whether they came temporarily and left or whether they came and stayed put or whether they were born there and then emigrated out, they all have much, much larger connections that I think we lose sight of if we only think in terms of um, people living on this land, people who have supposedly always lived on this land. Nobody always lived on this land. Everyone's coming and going. Everyone's coming and going. Everyone's trading. Everyone's moving around. Even peasants who hardly ever left their villages, they're going to the cities to sell their wares. And there they're encountering people from all over the world. So there's a much richer, more global history of the Palestinians that I want to bring out in this, um, in this book. And then the other element, our second I, element- I want to interrupt you just, just quickly for one moment. So when you're saying the, of the Palestinians, do you mean the, the modern usage of the word the Palestinians or you mean Palestine's people? I mean Palestine's people. And, and for our purposes in this conversation, I'm using the term Palestinians really to refer to Palestine's people mm-hmm. beyond uh, both temp- temporally going earlier than the nationalist period and geographically also not just sticking to um, sort of the Palestinian territories, but really thinking about Palestinian more broadly. And here I think it might be useful to note something that I was surprised to find as I embarked upon this research, which is that the geographic conception of Palestine, like where is Palestine, has been remarkably stable, again, for the last several centuries, even before the Islamic period. So in the Byzantine period, there were three, what we now call Palestine was divided into three provinces, each of which was called Palestine. There was Palestine one, Palestine two, and Palestine three that encompassed all of the modern, our modern idea of Palestine, plus parts of Jordan and parts of Southern Lebanon. So, and then Jund Philistine, which was the administrative district in the early Islamic period, corresponds quite remarkably to, uh, to Palestine as we understand it today, with the exception of the Galilee in the northern area, uh, in the northern area, which was called Jundul Urdun, uh, Jordan. 
which also encompasses part of Jordan. So geographically, this area that we call Palestine and that today's Palestinians recognize as Palestine was also recognized as Palestine going back a long, long time ago. So when I think about Palestine's people, it's a remarkably stable concept, which is something that I was quite surprised to find um, as I've been doing this research. And when you're looking at the people who came through, you're, are, you, are you looking at the, so it's a, it's a remarkably stable map with a little bit of fluctuation maybe in the north and maybe in the east a little bit. Are you looking at the, what are the, what are the what's the map of Palestine, of, of Palestine for the people who you're looking at? Whose research, whose history you're researching? So they are seeing themselves as part of a larger world. So they're not seeing Palestine as isolated onto itself. And also they're not seeing it as independent from the rest of the region. They're seeing it as a regional home for them, but not a national or a political entity that they're ruling over. Because remember, in the pre-modern in the pre-modern period, prior really to the French Revolution, the idea of popular sovereignty wasn't around really. There were people who ruled and people who were ruled, and that was pretty much it. And so the idea of who was ruling over Palestine varied from time to time. The people who were living there were living there and conceptualized Palestine not as a political entity but really as a geographic one and as one of belonging. And so what I mean by that is that as the people of Palestine are understanding their sort of place in the world, they're understanding it as very much interlinked with, interconnected with broader regions. And again, this goes back to trade, this goes back to, um, uh, uh, pilgrimage and sort of religious movement. It also goes back to familial ties. So lots of people who are living in Palestine, say in the, let's say even before Islam, so say in the fifth or sixth centuries or early seventh centuries, also had familial ties with other people, either because they left those people and migrated to Palestine, or you also have a lot of Arab tribes who are living in Palestine prior to Islam, prior to the advent of Islam, who have connections with the Hejaz, with Syria, with other places in the Arab world. So that brings me to another sort of element that again, I was surprised to find, which is I thought the, that the quote unquote Arabs came to Palestine in the seventh century with the rise of Islamic rule. But no, you had Arabs living in the south and in the north of Palestine sort of Arab tribes who claim descent from Arabian tribes well before the advent of Islam. So our modern conceptions of things like ethnicity and things like religion get really upended when we go further back in history. So these would have been Christian Arab tribes living in Palestine prior to Islam, who many of them were quite firm in their, in their Christianity, fought the Muslims initially, um, were defeated, so then you have Muslim rule ruling over Palestine, but they were very clear at the very beginning that they would not interfere in people's religious lives. Um, and then in Jerusalem in particular, uh, as you know, Jews were had been kicked out of Jerusalem by the Romans in 136, and so in 636 or 637, when Muslim rule um, is now established over Jerusalem, Omar ibn al-Khattab, the first Muslim caliph, invites 70 Jewish families 
to settle back into Jerusalem from Tiberias. And that you have the beginning with that of now a Jewish presence living in Jerusalem that you hadn't had for 500 years. And it was a really big deal at the time um, and a lot of the Jewish writings as well. Thank you. So thank you for all of that, for situating us, for, for bringing that in. And I, I, I interrupted you when you were talking to us about who has been living on this land for these many centuries. Um, is, was there, and you just started to, to tell us a little bit about coming with the Islamic, in the Islamic period. Will you tell us, will you tell us some more? Sure. So there's really a plurality of peoples who are living in Palestine. There is no one group that we would recognize today as a single ethnic group or a single religious or cultural group. So you had, so prior to Islam in the Byzantine period, let's say you had, um, you had uh, Greek speaking Christians who tended to live in the urban areas who were very loyal to the Byzantine um, state and the Byzantine empire. You had Aramaic speaking, largely rural populations living in the center and in the north that were predominantly Christian, but they were of a different type than the urban Byzantinists or the, the Greek speaking Christians. Um, you had Jewish populations that were a mixture of Aramaic and Hebrew speaking that would have been in the Galilee in and around Tiberias. And then you had Arab tribes that were living largely in the south and in the north kind of around um, like Tiberias as well in the Golan Heights in particular. So it was multilingual, it was multi-religious. And if you wanna use the term ethnicity, which I'm not sure I do, but if you did, it would be multi-ethnic as well. Uh, and that continued into, into the Islamic period for several centuries afterwards. So one of the other things I was surprised to discover is that Arabic becomes the lingua franca in Palestine much, much later than we would assume. It comes several centuries after um, Muslim rule is established over Palestine. So you can imagine in like the eighth and the ninth centuries, you have a thin strata of Muslim rulers ruling over Palestine who are speaking Arabic and who are Muslim, but the vast majority of the people are neither, are neither Arabic speaking nor are they Muslim. Um, they might be bilingual, so they might be speaking Aramaic and Arabic or Greek and Arabic, but they're not Arabic speaking or Arab in the sense that we think about it today. So this multiculturalism, this multilingualism, and this interconfessional relation, these interconfessional relationships mean that Palestine's people have always been much more pluralistic than we often assume. Fascinating. And inter by, by interconfessional for the non-professionals, you mean? I mean, multi-religious mm -hmm. and not just multi-religious in the sense of there being multiple religion, multi, you know, people practicing multiple religions side by side, but in the earliest century, century or two, you had, we have some evidence and I don't know how widespread it is, but we have some evidence of people actually celebrating each other's traditions as well. So you have Muslims going to Christian holiday processions and Christians partaking in Muslim celebrations and Muslims celebrating Jewish celebrations. And so, and that would help explain as we get into the early, like early modern period in the early 20th century, why you would, you also see in Palestine uh, folk festivals that seem to be drawn from multiple religious um, origins. 
So for example, um, the Nabi Rubin festival, Rubin isn't really a prominent figure in Muslim scholarship or theology, but isn't Jewish. And so I, I need to do more research on this, but I'm curious to know what the connections were there. So I think a lot of the folk festivals and folk traditions draw upon this earlier multi-religious framework and multi-religious um, society that itself stems from the fact that Palestine was this site of pilgrimage for all three religious um, traditions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So thank you for setting us up in this way and, um, and rooting us in this, I think what you called multiculturalism and, um, and, the, and, and the vision of people of the, the intermixing among, among these different communities. Just as a reminder, this is Sarah Ann Minkin of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I am here with Dr. Maha Nassar. Maha is Associate Professor in the School of Middle Eastern and North African Studies at the University of Arizona. She is also a new fellow at the Foundation for Middle East Peace. We are talking about her new research on the people of Palestine. This is part one of our conversation on this topic. And um, we are talking in general about the Islamic period up to about the Crusades. So Maha, just take us back for a second, please. Why did you decide to start with the Islamic period? That's a great question. So, so my training, my graduate training is in Near Eastern languages and civilizations. That's uh, my PhD is in that from the University of Chicago. And that as a field tends to look a lot at the Near East across time. And I was focused primarily on the modern period, on the 20th century, but as part of my coursework and part of my broader interest, I looked a lot at the Islamic period. And I was particularly interested in the history of Palestine in the Islamic period. And so I did graduate research and, and papers and things like that on it. And then over the years, as I've immersed myself more and more in the modern history of Palestine, but also as I've observed a lot of the political debates around Palestine, whether it's this question of who is here first or other sorts of questions about who the Palestinians are, I noticed that the conversations tended to either focus on the ancient period where there was a question of who is here first or pick up the story or start the story really in the modern period with the rise of Palestinian nationalism or maybe in the late Ottoman period in the late 19th century. But here was all this research and all this knowledge that's being produced about these 1400 years or 1300 years in between that nobody was talking about. I had an inkling about it because of my own training and I had an interest in it because of my background more broadly. But I realized that if we're going to have a more comprehensive solution and we only talk about 3000 years ago and 100 years ago, there's this huge space in the middle that nobody's really talking about. And a lot of cool things happen, I have to say during those centuries that I think helps us move away from some of the polemical debates and helps put more historical context, um, sheds more historical context on a lot of the more modern debates that we're having. Great, thank you. Do you have a thought on, or that, that you wanna share with us on why people haven't been focusing on this, this era? I think, I think it's two reasons. I think the ones who focus on the ancient are focused on that for their own sort of political reasons, because they think that if they can prove that we were here first, that they would somehow win the argument. On a completely separate uh, sort of line of thinking, I think those who focus on the modern period 
are reluctant to engage in the earlier period, either because they don't have the background and the training, or, and this was my initial, my initial um, hesitation around it, was that historians and scholars of the modern Middle East are very, are, we get, um, one of, one of my pet peeves, at least, is when we hear that the Arab-Israeli conflict or the Palestinian-Israeli conflict is an ancient conflict or is an ethnic conflict, or most sort of upsetting to me is that it's a religious conflict. And we insist, no, it's not. It's a modern national conflict. It's a conflict around colonialism and settler colonialism. It's a conflict around nationalism and competing nationalisms. Whatever it is, it is not an ethnic conflict, ancient conflict, or religious conflict. And so going into the pre-modern period, my initial concern was that it might be read as me trying to say that this was somehow a religious conflict or this was somehow an ancient conflict. And I didn't want to do that. Uh, but as I've gone further and further into the past, what I've realized is that this earlier period can actually help us understand more not so much the conflict, but the absence of conflict. So why was there an absence of conflict over all of these centuries? And how can that dynamic help shed light on our current situation, but also how to move forward? And I think it's important for me to pause at this point also and to clarify that it's really important that we not sugarcoat this earlier history or portray it as some kind of uh, interfaith utopia or multicultural utopia, because it wasn't. There were elements of conflict. There were elements of um, inequality, certainly. Um, this, is not a, this is not an interfaith utopia, and I don't want to make it sound like it is. But I think that the absence of mass uprisings, for example, against Muslim rule, particularly when the over, at a time when the overwhelming majority of the population wasn't Muslim, the fact that they're not rising up, the fact that they're not sort of in open revolt also is telling us something there. And so what is happening? If we, if we don't see conflict, what do we see? What can we discern about this earlier period? And then what does that tell us about the ways in which different religious groups live together in Palestine during these centuries? Thank you. Thank you for setting us up in that way. And it also, sets us up and brings us right into a moment when there was conflict and domination with religious groups. Tell us about the Crusades. Sure. So the Crusades, well, so quick background, the Crusaders are coming from Western Europe across uh, Asia Minor, so across sort of modern day Turkey, into Palestine in the 11th century ostensibly to protect Christians from these Muslim hordes. And to be, there was instability in Palestine and across the Middle East in the previous uh, decade or previous century or so. So, but the Christian crusaders are coming as Western European crusaders and not as part of the native Christians of Palestine. And so both the native Christians of Palestine as well as Muslims, as well as Jews were all targeted by the crusaders as they can't come in conquered Jerusalem in a very bloody manner um, in 1099. And we're very keen on setting up a crusader state in Palestine and sort of the broader Levant at that period and had a very exclusionary, uh, non-multicultural, non-multi-faith vision of who should be living on that land. 
And so Muslims are expelled from Jerusalem, Jews are expelled from Jerusalem. And, and we have a time when you had a very clear divide between the native inhabitants of Palestine, who would be Muslim and Christian and Jewish, who saw these interlopers coming from Europe with no sense of connection to the land, no sense of connection to the people of the land, seeking and coming and imposing their own uh, exclusionary and, and frankly chauvinistic religious vision. But what's interesting to me also is that when the Crusaders are defeated and ultimately expelled out of Jerusalem in 1187 by Salah al-Din, he doesn't see them as Christian. He sees them as foreign and as um, sort of, uh, you know, yeah, foreign really. So the, the Palestinian or the Arab Christians are not lumped together with the Crusaders. They're seen as distinct. And so Salahuddin brings back, and also Salahuddin brings back the Jews back into Jerusalem after the Crusaders had expelled them, um, had kicked them out. And so again, to my mind, and this is, I'm not alone in, in sort of reaching this conclusion, a number of the scholars I've been reading think about Islamic rule over Palestine and specifically over Jerusalem as a kind of amana, as a kind of responsibility to maintain the city and accessibility of its holy sites for Muslims, Christians, and Jews who, who share in that sense of shared space. And so Crusaders did not have that sense of shared space, and so they left, but the ones who were living in Palestine at that time had a more of this shared, uh, a sense of shared space. And I think that was the default. And I think part of it also relates to the fact that Islam as a religion sees itself as a legacy of, as continuing the legacy of the Judeo-Christian tradition, the Abrahamic faiths, all of which have connections to Jerusalem. And so there is an awareness among Muslims that Jerusalem is holy for Christians and Jews, as well as for Muslims. So when you look at the um, what's called Fada'al al-Quds literature, which is the uh, merits of Jerusalem, that is a genre of Islamic writing, they're not just talking about the merits of Jerusalem for Muslims, but they're talking about its broader legacy in terms of the holiness of Jerusalem um, that goes beyond even prior to um, the advent of Islam. So there is this sense of shared belonging that I think has very deep roots in the Islamic tradition. It's a legacy that often is overlooked in our modern discussions, particularly of how religion fits into this um, sort of current, current events and current debates. Religion is often seen as part of the problem. And I wanna also present it as a, as a road to being part of the solution as well. Thank you. I'm sure I'm going to have, we will have um, many more questions and, and much more discussion about that, about shared belonging, shared responsibility, um, shared space and, and, the, and the role of, and the potential role of, of religion as we keep talking about this topic. Um, but I, I, I want you, you have laid out for us, so thank you for laying out for us, this vision, this historical vision, who was there, who was ruling, what were the dynamics? Um, starting about 1400 years ago, uh, ending about a thousand years ago. So you've given us a, a, a nice chunk 
Um, and I'll just remind our listeners, this is part one on, on that piece of the, the historical discussion. But I, I want to actually take us back to um, the conceptual frameworks that you're operating in. So you have been talking about the people of Palestine and, and you started a little bit by, by um, differentiating, being very clear that you are not talking about uh, Palestinians who share Palestinian nationalism now or starting from the, from the, the um, 19th century, 19th, 20th centuries. Um, so how does the concept of peoplehood, the people of Palestine, how does that concept relate to Palestinian nationalism? So I see them as very much overlapping. I kind of imagine them as a Venn diagram with a very large area of a shared space because I think that a core, that core elements of Palestinian nationalism have to do with a connection. So core elements of Palestinian nationalism and core elements of Palestinian peoplehood both relate to the idea of connection to land and connection to one another. Those are two things that I think they, that they very much share. I think of Palestinian peoplehood as being a, a broader concept temporally in terms of time, as a, as a way in which people understood themselves as being from Palestine, even before nationalism was a thing in the world. And so to give you just one example, there is a traveler named Al-Muqaddisi who travels a lot throughout the 10th century. And he is from Al-Quds, from Jerusalem. And he talks in his travels about how, as he's traveling, he's going all throughout the Muslim world of the time, people refer to him by many different names. They'll refer to him as Al-Quddisi, they'll refer to him as Shami, which means from Balad al-Sham, kind of the Levant. And they refer to him as Palestini, as being Palestinian. And these are interchangeable names at the time but it's also a distinctive marker, right? There's this notion of he's not just a generic Shami, a generic Levantine, but he's specifically from Philistine. And there's a lot of um, evidence that we have of people who recognize themselves as being Philistine. So that's the connection to the land. The connection to the people, when a Palestinian anywhere in the world, myself included today, meets another Palestinian from any, anywhere in the world, and they each find out they're Palestinian, the next question is, where in Palestine is your family from, right? What Balad is your mom from, your dad from, et cetera. And that kind of specificity establishes a connection to both the land, but also to the people. Oh, you're from that Balad? My mom's cousin's from that Balad. My uncle's wife is from that Balad. Oh, do you know so-and-so? So there are these social, connections that I don't th that I think would be there regardless of whether there was a nationalist movement or not. And even within the absence of a Palestinian nation, we still have the sociality, this idea of peoplehood, this idea that we are all from the same uh, place, but also that we have these, this sense of belonging to one another. Um, and I think that's really beautiful. I don't think it's unique to Palestinians. I think that a lot, a lot of people from a lot of other parts of the world say something very similar. But I, and that's why I think though that peoplehood is very much entwined with national identity, but it's not um, intertwined with it. That there are elements that go beyond and that have gone beyond. So this idea of what Bada are you from? I don't think is unique to the, I don't think it started with the rise of Palestinian nationalism. 
I think that it predates that and it goes beyond um, national identity as well. Thank you. And you just talked about Palestinians from anywhere in the world meeting each other and, and having these conversations. So my last question for you today, um, what does it mean to think about Palestinians as a global people, as having a global history? Yeah. So for me, I am excited about the idea of thinking about Palestine's people in a global history because it helps us understand the Palestinians as both a national people, but also a transnational people. And there's a lot of really exciting research coming out around the idea of the Palestinians being transnational. There's a new book called um, Transnational Palestine coming out by Nadim Bawalsa. There's another historian named Asmat al-Halabi who's also talking about this idea of a global, uh, Palestinians as a global people. And what I think it does is it gets us out of this trap of who was here first and who's been here the whole time and, and so forth. And it really sets us up nicely to think about interconnections of Palestinians in ways that help shed light on, on our transnationality as well as our nationality. And what that also does I think it sets us up to think about Palestine as a shared space. So to take us back to Pal the, the Palestine part of Palestine's people, if Palestine is part of this global history, then Palestine is also part of a shared global history. And so what does that mean moving forward as we think about how do we have peace and justice and coexistence in this land We've learned now for the last century or so that exclusionary claims to the land don't work. They don't. And so how can we have a more inclusive conception of the land and the people who belong in it? And maybe that can set us up as a way forward. Wonderful. I am so excited to continue talking to you as you continue developing this research and so excited to, to read the book when it's here. Thank um, you. I'm excited to keep working on the book and I'm excited for these conversations. I think that we need to have more of them that are not immediately grounded in the sort of the politics of the day because the politics of the day as important as it is to talk about those things, I think um, can sometimes um, lead us to lose sight of the bigger picture. And I think looking at that bigger picture is really how we move forward. Beautiful, thank you. Well, it's a privilege to get to be a part of this moving forward with you. So thank you. Um, and thank you also to all of our listeners for tuning into this episode of Occupied Thoughts. Please make sure to check out our website, www.fmep.org, for lots of content, great content related to Palestine and Israel. Please make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast so that you stay up to date. You can find us on iTunes, on SoundCloud even on Spotify. And you can watch video versions of our podcasts, including this one on YouTube. And with that, I am Sarah Ann Minkin signing off until the next episode of FMEP's Occupied Thoughts. Thanks so much. Take care. Mm -hmm.